question many of us ask is, does what I do even matter? It's a question of the ultimate significance of what we do with the majority of our lives. You might be a butcher or a carpenter, a parent, unemployed or studying full-time, a CEO or a shift worker in the health sector. As Dorothy Sayers once said, often the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is confined to encouraging him not to be drunk and disorderly during the week and to come to church on Sundays. What we should be telling him is this, that the very first demand upon him is that he should make good tables. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. It is an absolute privilege and honour to kick off a new series here at New Life. We're doing this across the families uh, of all our churches, rework, thinking about life and faith and work and trying to capture our imaginations with what we do with our hands, in our nine to five, and in, according to the statistics, the 90,000 hours that make up the average work life cycle of every human being. Rework. Um, If you've spent any time in a community of Christians, there's a game that you will know and equally love and hate to play. The game's called Mafia. <laughs> the premise of Mafia is that there's townspeople and there's Mafia. And the aim of the game is for the townspeople to be the last people standing and all the Mafia found out and killed off. It's a game. They're the two characters, mainly speaking. But there's one other character, and that's the narrator. Some narrators, depending on who they are, they really enjoy sort of adding flair and flavour to their narration. And so in weaving through the story that they're getting their characters to experience, they'll add little details that are mostly superfluous, but when you experience it, they kind of feel necessary. Other narrators... They just give you the bare bones, necessary structure to get the game done. I don't know how I feel about either of them. I haven't haven't made my decision. I like them both. But one thing I've discovered, and you'll know this to be true, is that whoever narrates the story governs the experience of the characters. Whoever narrates the story governs the experience of the characters. And there are a lot of narratives that float around the ether of our culture about work. And the narratives that float around the ether of our culture, they govern the experience of workers. Whether you're unemployed or employed, whether you're retired or just starting out, whether you're a student or a full-time mum, whatever your story is, the narration that you have about work will govern your experience of work. Secular stories, they're usually one of two things in my experience. And I get this mostly just from chatting with friends who I spend longer than five minutes with, right? Secular stories sort of oscillate between one or two poles. One secular story is what I call the the hedonist story, the hedonist narration of work. It's the, I live for pleasure and all work does is serve my weekend. You might've heard it like this, living for the weekend. This is sort of the hedonist picture. I'm not saying that these people are hedonists. I'm just saying that's the flavor of what they believe about work, and it governs their experience. 
These people, they're the kind of people, and I've been having these ads pop up on my YouTube as well. They're the kind of people who have ads on YouTube that pop up and, you know, there might be a guy named Shane and he's getting out of his Lamborghini and he's walking to the beach with his laptop MacBook Pro and he sits there, opens it up and he says, this could be you. You'll never have to work another day in your life because why? Living for the weekend. None of us like work. We're hedonists. That's one secular story. On the other end of the spectrum is the story that work is where I tap my fundamental meaning in life. These people don't live for the weekend, they live for Mondays. They love work, why? Because work is where I get my identity. They're the secular stories. And in my experience, I think we tell similar stories in the Christian world. You you get Christians who, they're not hedonists, they're Puritans. They go to work because they think that all that their work is for is so they can raise money to give it to the really pure saintly ministers or the mission work. Now on one level that's good, but it's a low vision of what Mondays looks like. Am I wrong? They think that all that their work is for is to raise money to give it away. I think God's got a a much bigger picture of what work is for the Christian. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got your your people who, who idolize work and think that God's primary interest for your life is for you to have a great job, a great career, a great dream. And again, on one level, there's nothing wrong with these things. But if it's the governing narrative for your work, it's not big enough. It's not missional enough. It's not beautiful enough. The narrative that you believe about work, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, whatever your background is, it will govern your experience of work. So what story do you believe? What narrative have you been brought up under? If you believe that work is just a means to an end, you'll be anxious on Sundays. You will grieve Mondays and you'll think of Monday to Friday as laborsome. That's if you've got a typical work week. If it's not, you might be a shift worker. You'll be anxious before work. You will grieve getting to work. If you think work is just a means to an end, you will not celebrate work, you'll suffer it. You won't enjoy work, you'll endure it. If you think work is where you get your meaning in life, if work is not a means to an end, but an end in itself, you'll be anxious all the time that you need to succeed in the role that you're in. You want to get to the top of the ladder. Why? Because if you're not having meaningful contributions in your work, your meaning's challenged. Your identity's challenged. If you think that, if you believe work is where you just raise money to give to Christian mission, as as good as that is, you'll, you'll fail to see that how you do your work and what you do while you're at work is actually one of God's primary ways that he wants to minister through you to the world you find yourself in. The narrative that you believe about your work will govern the experience you have. So here's the question, what narrative do you believe about work this afternoon? Is it helping you in your work? Is it putting you on mission in your work? And a really easy way to answer that is, how do you feel on Sunday nights? I used to work at a cafe, uh, actually in Milton, Bunker, shout out, best coffee in Brisbane in my opinion. And don't challenge that. I loved my job, but I didn't have a framework for it. And when Sundays would roll around, I'd just delay getting ready for work because I couldn't picture why it was good and something I should invest my time in. And it made me more anxious. What's your Sunday night? Is it Sunday? Are you a shift worker? Is it another day? And how do you feel when that moment comes around? Are you anxious? Are you excited? 
Are you hopeful? Are you daunted? That feeling will reveal to you the narrative you believe about work. Maybe you're a full-time mum or dad, unemployed or in between. Maybe you're retired. How does all of these statements about where you're at, the station you're in, the role you have, how do they make you feel? And how you feel will reveal to you what your narrative is. In this series, we want to re-narrate what work is for the Christian. And we want to invite anyone with any background to think about what their work could be labelled as in this world. It's about purpose. It's about calling. It's about on mission for God. And here's the question. Why do we work? How do we work? Is it possible to work in such a way that Jesus is displayed as our king? And to do that today, I want to move through three brief scenes. I want to help us rediscover the purpose of work. I want to help us reckon with the curse of work. And I want to help us see and reimagine the calling of work. And to do this, you'll remember early in the year, we went through the book of Genesis as a family, Genesis 1 through 11. I'll be tapping into the first three chapters of that sort of first part of that book. And I don't have time to read through it all, unless you want to be here till much later than I intend. But if you want to revisit those texts, which were preached beautifully and faithfully at the start of this year, go to our podcast series, jump on in, you'll enjoy that. But I'll be diving in and out of those three texts. And so follow along as we go. But before I do that, I'd love to pray, not just for this sermon, not just for your ears now, but for this series, that God would speak to us, we'd hear from him, and we'd walk away changed and inspired to think about our work in a whole new way. So let me pray. Lord, you are our Father, and you are our friend. And Father, I pray that tonight as we hear your scriptures unfolded, and we apply it to our lives, would you minister to us, regardless of our station, regardless of our role, regardless of our title and our standing in any ladder in this employment world, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts today. Give us a vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the workplace, and bigger than that, to understand our larger calling as image bearers of God. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. So we need to rediscover the purpose of work. One of my favorite novels, might be yours too, is Lord of the Rings. And in Return of the King, we're introduced to a character who's incredibly undeserving of a title that he gets, but the title that he gets is beautiful. It's extraordinary. And this character's name is Lord Denethor. The way he's portrayed in the novels is actually quite nice, but the way he's portrayed in the movies, he's like this evil old bitter man. So if you've read the novels, you'd be tracking with me a bit more helpfully than you would be if you've just seen the movies. Encourage you to read the novels. Lord Denethor, he's named the Steward of Gondor. Steward of Gondor. And the thing I love about this picture of Lord Denethor is as a steward, his task was to take care of the kingdom, but the kingdom wasn't his. That's Lord Denethor. The rightful heir to the throne was King Aragorn, but Aragorn was absent. And in Aragorn's absence, with the premise that he was going to return... Denethor was the steward, and that was his role, to take care of the kingdom, to nurture it, so that one day the king would return and take up his throne. Stewardship. This is the role that God gives his people in the scriptures. Stewardship. What Aragorn did for Denethor, God does for humanity. Humanity's purpose, in the opening pages of the Bible, is to be called stewards. 
stewards of God's creation. And work is the means by which we do that stewardship. That's the picture. I don't know if you think about your work this way, but work is part of the larger vision that God has for all humans as they fulfill their call to steward creation. Genesis 2 builds this picture out. Genesis 2 makes the case that three things. Creation is one, a project that God started. Two, sorry, project one, two that God started, and three, that he entrusts to humans. A project that God started that he entrusts to humans. It's Genesis 2. So you back it up. It's a project. A lot of us think when we think about Genesis 2 and the, the opening pages of the Bible that it's a finished product. It's a finished paradise. But it's not. Eden, it means delight. In the Hebrew scriptures, it means delight. So it's beautiful, yes, but it's not done. Why? Well, we know the end of the Christian story, that one day God's coming back to make all things new, that what began as a garden will turn one day into a city, and it begs the question, why didn't God just create that? Why didn't he just bypass all the risk, all the partnership with humanity? Why? Because it's a project that he entrusts humans to steward. It's the project that God started. It's not a finished product. Genesis 2 opens and it says that uh, there was no shrubs. This is the early, early verses of Genesis. There was no shrubs that had grown on the ground yet for two reasons. One, there was no rain from the sky and two, there was no person to work and keep it. And so the Lord made water flow from rivers in multiple directions in Genesis 2. So God did his bit. And then it says God got down into the dust, the clay, and formed man. It's not a pro- finished product. It's a, it's a project. Two, that God started. Verse 7, after God's created the heavens and the earth, you get a picture of Yahweh as worker, God as worker. God not as someone who abstains from working or removes himself from working, but as someone who gets into the dust. Verse 7 says he formed man from the dust. And it, the imagery you get here, you kind of got to contrast with what other stories used to speak about God. Other stories want to say that God's all-powerful, and that's true. God's omniscient, he's all-knowing, that's true. But the picture you get from Genesis 2 is not of this distant, all-powerful God, it's of this intimate craftsman. The, the craftsman that God asks us to be, the stewards that God asks us to be, the creators that God asks us to be, he models it for us first. The imagery of God in Genesis 2 is Yahweh as worker. He started the project. And three, he entrusted it to humans. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. Now, this is a profound thought because if you think that Genesis 1 gives us a picture of a world that God's finished, it makes no sense of what he asks humans to do next, which is to keep it, to work and to keep. This is language of stewardship, And this is the vision. This is the vision in which work gets caught up in the Christian story. The vision is that God, he takes the raw materials of the chaos, he brings order out of it, and he creatively forms a world which is beautiful, which he calls good, and ultimately in which he is at the center. And then he takes that world and he passes it to humans and he says, take this garden paradise and the ethos of my presence and push it across the known world. Multiply, bless, and recreate in my name. 
so that what you experience as delight, the world will know too. This is the cultural mandate, theologians call it. And here's why it's crucial. It's crucial because it means that work is inherently good. Not everyone believes that. Old mate who's living for the weekend that loves the guy that gets up on the YouTube ad out of the Lamborghini and says, you'll never have to work a day. Not everyone believes this, but the Christian story begins with this first scene that work is inherently good. And each of us need to hear that. It is good. Work is not a result of the fall. It's not a byproduct of sin. Work is good. We were made to work. You were made to work. You were made to work. Each of us here were made to work. Let's define work in a bit. But we were made to work. Work is good. This is the MO of God, the commission of God that he gives to all humans to partner with him in the pushing out of the ethos of the garden with him at the center, his presence governing all things and the beauty and the shalom and the flourishing of Eden for the rest of the world. This should change your Mondays. This should really change your Mondays. If work is inherently good, then it means that Christians of all people have the most reason to look forward to work and to pursue excellence at work. Now, I don't know what Christian story you believe. Some people believe that God created this world and the whole material world's turned into chaos. And so one day God's gonna take us out of it and the material world will be gone. That, that's just not the story of God. Every time God interacts in a special way with creation, he does it with the material world. Creation, incarnation in Jesus Christ, and second coming of Jesus Christ, all of which are God's vindication of the beauty of the material world. So what does this mean? It means that Christians of all people should have the most reason to pursue excellence at work. So let me get even more specific. If you're a painter, you're not just a tradie. You're a steward of raw materials, making beauty. If you're a mother, you're not just in a holding pattern with the child who screams 24-7, although that is sometimes true, I hear. You're a disciple maker, and you're giving your all that they would be grown up into the thing that God's destined them to be. If you're a student, you're not just thinking intellectual thoughts that have no, no impact on the world. You're thinking, how does this make the world better? How does this take the chaos, bring order out of it, and make flourishing possible for me and the world? If you're an admin, you're not just sitting at a desk, occupying a cubicle. You're stewarding resources to give order out of chaos that the world might flourish, and the company you're in would, would have an impact that's helpful, that doesn't take away. I like what James K.S. Smith calls humanity. He calls us sub-creators. Beautiful language. You're not the creator, but you are commissioned as a sub-creator. You're not the king. You're a steward. And you've got a great calling. And that's the purpose of work, to steward, create. So be inspired. Dream big. Pursue excellence. Don't hold back. You're a steward. Let's go somewhere with this world together. Some of you might say, Alex, you can beat that drum all you like, bro, but I still gotta wake up tomorrow and there's an alarm coming and, and I would say, yeah, I get that and this is why we need to reckon with the curse of work. Work is hard. Work is not what the vision of Genesis 1 and 2 have opened up to us. 
Now, this might sound hectic, the idea of curse. I just want to acknowledge that before I go any further. Work is cursed. And you might say, whoa, is there like a wizard in this story? I don't think so, but track with me. Work is cursed. And because, even though it sounds hectic, this statement, it has a profound ability to explain what we experience every day. That work is cursed. Genesis 3 tells the story of Adam and Eve choosing to not trust God and to define good and evil for themselves. And the resulting implications are that humanity rebels, creation is fractured, and the calling that God gave original humanity and to us has echoed in brokenness for the rest of time. Theologians call this the fall, and Adam and Eve goes from being the one through whom God wanted to administer blessing to the world to now being the one through whom God's curse comes. So we're all caught up in this Adam story. We all experience work as cursed. Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19 say this. God speaking to Adam said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, quote, you must not eat from it, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 2, God gets down in the dust, breathes his spirit in, and then formed Adam with this beautiful vision. Genesis 3, God is literally reversing what Adam's original vocation is and what God did in Adam. From dust you are to dust you will return. The consequences are huge. Now we experience labor, thorns, thistles, mundaneity. We went from working and keeping in the garden of delight to thorns and thistles east of Eden. That's the picture. Work is curse. And I think we experience this in so many ways. Let me just unpack a few of them. In my experience, this might resonate with you. Sometimes we experience work as meaningless. It's mundane, it's repetitive, and it makes you ask the question, does what I do even matter? Maybe you are a businessman or a businesswoman. You work here in the city. You wake up at six, eat your breakfast, jump on the bus, get to work, get your flat white at bunker, of course. And then you sit in your cubicle, respond to some emails, get the bus home, eat, sleep, repeat. Wake up the next day, catch the bus to work, Get your flat white at bunker, sit in your cubicle, respond to some emails, maybe you make some headway in a particular project you're working on, you finish your day, catch the bus home, eat, sleep, repeat. Maybe you're a student and you wake up at six and then you remember that you're a student so you go back to sleep. (laughs) And I don't know when students wake up these days. But you get up, let's just say 11. It's funny because it's a stereotype, but I realize it's a stereotype. Get up at 11, make your single origin filter at home, and jump on the bus, go to UQ, study your subjects, come home, stress out about a deadline, eat, sleep, repeat, wake up, make your batch brew filter, get on the bus, go to UQ, sit through classes, work on a project, stress out about deadlines, go home. Maybe you're a tradie. Wake up at five, 
Get in the Hilux. <laughs> Stop off at 7-Eleven, get a pie. <laughs> if you know, you know. And get to work, get on the tools, send some invoices, get home, eat, sleep, repeat. Wake up, no coffee, get your pie, work, eat, sleep, repeat. Maybe you're a mother and you're always awake (laughs) and you're just praying that this thing would grow up (laughs) and learn to sleep. And you repeat that day in, day out. And here's the question. How does what I do even make a difference? Our generation, my generation, we stay in a job like between one and a half to three years, you know, on average. Generations before mine, they'd stay in a job for decades. So they might feel this more. But all of us come under this influence in some sense. How does what I do given the repetitive nature of it, given the mundanity, given the meaninglessness of it, how does what I do even make a difference? And I just want to say to you, thorns and thistles, bro, like that's not trite, that's not meaningless, that is a helpful statement. Work's cursed. Of course you'd experience that. Me too. Sometimes work feels difficult. Think about laboursome jobs. I grew up with a dad who was a carpenter, And one of the things he'd always say is, I can't wait to get off the tools. I mean, we live in a world, we just take this for granted, but we live in a world where there are tasks which literally break our backs. Over time, RSI. Baristas have this thing where they get RSI in their elbow if they tamp down a coffee too much. They recently introduced like a new tamper, automatic tamper thing, and it changed our worlds. (laughs) But work literally breaks our bodies. No No one would name that. We need to name that. It breaks our bodies. Standing on your feet for 11 hours straight in a hospital job, maybe that's your story. I've been there. Hunching over a desk in your cubicle just to get the PowerPoint ready that you know you won't be able to close the deal on. That hurts. Work, and this is the, the kicker, work sometimes feels defeated. I don't know what industry you're in, but my wife worked in um, social work in the last sort of six months in Sydney. There's a lot of red tape There's a lot of bureaucracy that actually is, it it stands in the way of social change sometimes. And if you're trying to advocate for positive change in this world, maybe you've experienced that red tape. It makes you feel defeated. There's this larger system out there. And it's not to demonise it or dehumanise it. It's just to name it. It's hard. You can feel defeated. Or think about what we're experiencing right now. We live in something called the gig economy all the rise of these apps and their ability to contract out solo workers. You might be able to raise, you know, a decent amount of wage if you're an Uber driver, for example, or a Deliveroo deliverer, whatever it is. But the rights you have as a worker in the gig economy, they're they're quite small. It's changing, that's good. But where does this come from? And Genesis 3 just says, work's cursed. It's inherently good, but it's broken. And we live through the laboursome thorns and thistles. This is the mundaneity of work, the laboriousness of life, the meaninglessness of our work week. And the scary thing is, you go through this on autopilot week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and then you pause and you sit for long enough to think deep enough and ask, well, why? And that's called a midlife crisis. (laughs) And there's an industry to balm that 
hobbies, all those kinds of things. But the deeper question is why? God started out with this beautiful vision of creation to push it forward with beauty and shalom and flourishing. And that seems like a joke now if you've lived for more than five seconds in a normal work week. Why? Thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. It's beautiful, but it's broken. And here's the cool thing. If you know that it's broken, and then it'll change the way you experience it. You won't despair when it feels meaningless. Why? Because you know it's broken. And you know that your calling is that despite its meaninglessness, is to be in it and work through it and be faithful. You won't be surprised when it's mundane. Why? Because you'll have that little bit more resilience. Because you have a bit more of a textured framework that work was never meant to be that was the thing that fulfills us in the first place. You'll be less surprised when it's mundane. And the thing is, you won't get defeated when you experience pushback, when you're trying to advocate for positive change. Why? Because you know what's wrong. And the curse of work that we experience, it's not right. It's not the way the world should be. So when you experience its pushback, you won't let it defeat you. Because God's got you on mission with a commissioning to steward his world. Work is inherently good, but it's also cursed. You need to rediscover the purpose of work, reckon with the curse of work, and finally, we need to reimagine the calling of work. Now, one of the things we talk about, particularly in Christian circles, is our calling in life. And I think this is helpful language. We might say, I'm called to be a pilot, or I'm called to be a stay-at-home mum, or I'm called to be a stay-at-home dad, or I'm called to be an academic. And, and this is helpful. You would hope um, that given that work is good, that you would think about who you are in some way related to what you do. This is a good thing. If work is good, work should matter, and work should matter to us, what we do. But there's a problem. And the problem is, it's not that we would think too little of work in our day, it's that we'd think too much of work. That we'd ask work to be something it was never intended to be. So it's good to say, I feel called as X, Y, and Z, but remember, you also need to say something that you're not in that, that there is a greater calling that you have. You want work to be meaningful, but you don't want to tie your meaning to work. Um, you do this when you tie your identity, your purpose, your meaning, and your value to what you do with your nine to five. When my parents were growing up, work was seen as the thing that would just pay the bills. It'd put the necessities of life on the table, roof over our head, food on our table, all that kind of thing. Millennials and Gen Z, which is a number of us in this room, work also needs to pay for luxuries in life for us before we've like saved up for it. So Avo on Toast, key example. Um, the coffee that you like, the, the gadget that you really want, which by next September will be kind of redundant because the new gadgets come out. Work now needs to afford us those luxuries too. But even deeper still, for millennials and Gen Z in particular, work needs to give us meaning in life. You ask someone, what do you do? And if they're not doing anything, they'll be sheepish about it. If they're doing something, they'll be really proud of it and they'll say, I know exactly what I'm called to do. And it's intimidating. Why? 
Because they believe the myth that work is something that your identity is tied to. We believe the lie that work is where I get my identity from, where I find meaning in life. And the problem with this, in my experience, is that it leaves you vulnerable. It leaves you vulnerable to these questions. What if you don't like your job? What if you're unemployed? What if it's hard? What if you're not succeeding in your role? If you reduce your calling, your identity, and your purpose to what you do in this life, you're vulnerable, in short, to the job market. And that's a very precarious place to put your heart in. And there's a better story. If you tie your identity to employment, then you'll feel a whole host of things. If you're unemployed, you'll feel meaningless in yourself, and you'll be jealous of all your friends who are hashtag winning at life. If you're employed but you don't like your role, you're in a crappy job, you'll feel unfulfilled. If you're employed and you love your role, you, you might get proud, it's not guaranteed, thank God, you might get proud, but what is really likely is that you'll just be unable to relate to those who are struggling in life, who don't have the job that they want. Why? Because you've based your life on the idea that your identity, your purpose, your calling, your meaning, your value, and your worth is based on what you do. And that immediately creates a disconnect and a divide between you who are winning in your role and those who aren't doing so well. There's a better story to tell about work. There's a bigger calling. Here's the beautiful thing about the Christian story. That regardless of what you do for work, each of us share a calling that pre-exists, supersedes, permeates and informs whatever we find ourselves doing. Each of us have a calling that pre-exists, supersedes, permeates and informs whatever we do with our lives. Our meaning's not tied to what we do, it's tied to who we are. And who we are comes in Genesis 1. Image bearers of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 reads this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, many of us know Many of us know, if you live in the Western world, you know, we're on the back end of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we know that this language of image-bearing is crucial to dignity and value and worth. But image, in the Hebrew imagination, image of God, it's a technical term. It's, it's not just the fuel for the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It, it's a technical term, which in the Hebrew imagination refers to an image or statue put in a temple that serves two purposes. One, to represent the God, which it's trying to picture, and two, to symbolize that God's presence. To represent the God and to symbolize the presence. And so when God says of humanity, all humans, regardless of job or not job, employment or unemployment, retiree or just starting out, God says of all humans, you're made in my image. What he's saying is all humans, were made to represent God and to be administrators of God's presence. All humans were made to represent God and to be administrators of God's presence. That should blow your mind. 
that should change your Mondays. And it should change how you think about your unemployment and your employment. It should change how you think about what you do and how you do it. Maybe you're unemployed. Here's the question. How can you represent God and administer God's presence? One of the questions Christians ask is, how do I relate my faith to my work? This idea and your creativity is the answer. We're going to address some really practical things in this series, but it requires you to get creative too. And so let me ask, maybe you're a mother. Here's the question. How do I represent God and administer God's presence to my family? Maybe you're a minister or a retired minister. How do I represent God and administer God's presence to my family? This is what it means to be an image bearer of God. Maybe you work at a desk nine to five. Maybe you're on whatever your story. How do I represent God and administer God's presence? And this is God's way of operating. He calls a humanity to himself, partners with them, and through them seeks to give his presence to the world. And so here's the question. Will you, not just this series, not just this week, but with your life, partner with God? Let God call you to himself so that he can pour out his spirit on you and be the, you be the vessel through whom he administers his presence to the world. What a great question to ask about work. Will you let this narrative minister to the pain and the hurt and the toil that you've experienced in your own life of work? And will you let this story captivate your imagination for what you do with your life? Your calling is not based on what you do, it exists outside of it, but it informs the way you do what you do. Will you let these things minister to you? We need to rediscover the purpose of work. We need to reckon with the curse of work. We need to reimagine the calling of work, that which sits outside of what we do but informs everything we do. Why? You, me, we, us, we are all image bearers of God. And that's the commission and the invitation of the first three chapters of Genesis. We've got a whole rest of the book to read in this series and a whole host of other topics to address. But today, know that you are a steward of God's creation. You are tasked with pushing the beautiful world that God intends forward in your life. And your work is caught up in that story. One thing we'd love to do is pray for people in this series. Uh, but before I get there, I just want to make an invitation I want to speak specifically into a narrative that we believe about work and the narrative that says that work is where I find my meaning in life. This is for the Christian in the room and it's also for the non-Christian, someone with any background in life. I want to ask this question to you. Do you believe the lie that work is where you get your meaning in life? And a follow-up question. How's that going? Is it, are you tired? Are you burnt out? Are you exhausted? You've believed the lie. Your identity should not be tied to what you do. It should exist outside of it and inform what you do. And so I want to invite each of us in the room just to close our eyes. And I want to pray for those. You might be a Christian and this might be a moment for you to confess. Confess that you've believed the lie put your trust and your hope and your identity into something that's made you vulnerable and you're tired. And I'd love to pray for you. 
You might be, you might have no background in faith, no history in the church. And you've been running and running and running. And you were told that if you just go to school and work hard enough, you get grades that are good enough to give you a job that's helpful enough to pay the bills that'll give you the life that you want. And you're tired because it hasn't worked. Or maybe you're halfway through and you're tired and I just wanna tell you it's not gonna work. And you're hearing today that there's a calling that can exist outside of the race that you're running that calls you out of that race and puts you back into it with a new identity, a new heart, a fresh start. And you say, I wanna be part of that story. And I just wanna invite you, if that's you, let me pray for you in a moment. So whether you're a Christian confessing now or you're a non-Christian who's asking, I wanna be part of this story. I wanna invite you just to raise your hand and I'd love to pray for you. So if that's you, raise your hand now. Thank you so much. Up on the balcony, that's really helpful. In the middle of the room, that's so helpful. Anyone else, I'd love to just pray for you. That's really helpful. Thank you so much. You're not, you're not telling me this, you're confessing this to God. So just raise your hands. That's really helpful. Thank you. I see all those hands. Let me pray for you. Father, we just say as a community, as individuals in particular, we're sorry. Sorry for thinking that our meaning, our value, our identity, and our worth can come from anything other than that which you've called us. And thank you, God, that you call us yours. Thank you, God, that because of your great love, your character of mercy, you call us yours. I pray for those in the room right now that don't know you. I ask, Lord, that you'd help them confess their rebellion, repent, bend the knee, and be welcomed home to you, Father, and to experience the life that is truly life. I lift them to you now, Lord, and pray that you'd pour out your spirit on them. They might know you, love you, and be loved by you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. I just invite you to come back to the room with me and we just want to move into a time now where, um, before I say that, I just want to say, if, if you've prayed that, please come and tell one of our team. There'll be people down the front here praying for you. I'll be available after the service. Come and share what God has done in your heart this afternoon through human words. Come and share. But before we get there, one thing we'd love to do throughout the series is pray for particular sectors represented in our church. And today, to do that, we'd love to invite those in the sectors I'm about to list out to stand and have me and the brothers and sisters around you commission you into your workplace as representatives of God and as administrators of His presence. And so today we're gonna to be looking at the health sector. And on the screens behind me, you'll see a list of roles, not a list of roles kind of cycling through. And if you see a role that you're in currently, I wanna invite you to stand. And I'm gonna quickly list through them myself, but broadly speaking, it's the health sector. You might be a counselor, a psychologist, you might be in psychiatry, mental health services, you might be in pastoral work in hospitals so on and so forth. You might be an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist. You might be in administration. 
in hospital or in the health sector. And so if that's you, I just want to invite you right now, please stand to your feet. We'd love to pray for you. It's really helpful. Thank you. And for those of us around the room, if you're not standing, I'd love to invite you to stretch out your arms to those standing, if you feel comfortable, and we're going to pray. We're going to commission them as image bearers of God and ask that God would pour out His Spirit on them. So let's pray together, would we? Father in heaven, the God who is a worker and who invites us to work, I lift up my friends before you now, health workers in the health sector, doctors, psychologists, administrators, pastoral carers, I pray for them, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit on them, that they'd know you intimately, that they'd know you in such a way that they can represent you accurately, that they'd know you so intimately that they can administrate your presence, not to just their colleagues, but to the very work that they find themselves doing. I pray, Lord, and commission them today in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.